Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. everyone and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, I'm joined by a recurring guest and AP poll voter, Matt Brown from The Athletic. The College Football Hall of Fame has announced 76 FBS players and a handful of coaches who are candidates to be inducted into the Hall in 2020. Matt and I will talk about the Hall of Fame and take on the impossible task of whittling the list down to 13 players. We'll also talk about the athletic series on 150 years of college football. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts and just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week, recurring guest, Matt Brown, AP college football poll voter and editor for The Athletic. Thank you very much, Matt, for uh, joining me today on this. uh, You know, it's it's spring and it's been a relatively quiet offseason. So when the uh, Hall of Fame says, hey, we're announcing our, uh, our ballot of who's go- who are the candidates this year that will be um, eligible for induction, well, that's content, baby. So that's – and nobody knows this, you know, has, has a broader knowledge of college football and has also been not to mention studying up on the history of college football all offseason than Matt Brown. So I figured I'd bring you on to uh, chat up Hall of Fame. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I love talking about history, especially in the off season. So it's a it's a fun subject. And even though the College Football Hall of Fame doesn't, I don't think get people riled up quite like the Baseball Hall of Fame or things like that. It's still every year you look at the list and say, why is this not guy not in yet? So uh, there's plenty of room for debate with the College Hall of Fame. That's for sure. Yeah, actually, and let's let's touch on that for first of and, and eventually we'll get around to Matt and um, is leading a project at the Athletic on 150 years of college football history, going literally back to the start. So you you guys, I believe, are up to about the 1960s now? That's correct. 1960s published this week, so uh, we're somehow 10, 10 decades down, only five to go. Yeah, so, so Matt Matt is the, uh, the one of the few folks in college football who might be working harder now than he, he would be during the season, which is just not good strategy, Matt. Uh, well, you know, there's, there's only ever going to be one 150th anniversary of college football so we'll enjoy it while we can (laughs) so uh, so again the ballot came out today there are 76 fbs former fbs players and obviously they weren't it wasn't fbs at the time where a lot of these guys played it was division 1a and and it's simply almost impossible to get everybody in because, as you said, the, the first thing you notice when you start scrolling through the list is, oh, my God, he's not in yet. He's not in yet. And it's it's fair to sort of give people a little background of the process here. The, the, first of all, the sheer number of college football players makes it really tough to get caught up. I mean, to be eligible for the Hall of Fame, you have to be a first-team All-American at some point during your career which is a fairly low bar but still that I mean there's there's dozens and dozens of players every year that make that um that make that qualification because it's not just the AP All-America team it might be I think it's the seven six or seven teams that are recognized by the NCAA which includes I think Sporting News and and FWAA so to to simply undergo this task is enormous and, and as you said when so when you grab your ballot this year or not it's actually we don't vote just to be sure we don't vote on this um but when you grab the candidates this year when that arrived in your inbox and you started scrolling through who were the oh my god that guy's not in yet well it's always anybody who's won the heisman because i feel like that should just be like automatic entry because you're gonna get in like Every Heisman winner should just be in the College Football Hall of Fame, right? I, that's what I think. Um, and so in that case, it's it's Carson Palmer, it's Rashawn Salam, who especially stood out since we're going back to 1994, um, and Eric Crouch. And then the other one every year, which I know why he's not in, but it's Eric Dickerson. Like, I'm sorry, come on. He's one of the greatest running backs of all time. Um, 
Maybe I should go on my rant about that now. I yeah, know, yeah. No, what? No, what? Go for it because there's a reason why. But but like, so your rant will cover the reasoning why he's not in, and uh, and go for it. So, look, obviously SMU got in a lot of trouble in the 1980s for impermissible benefits, and uh, that overshadows basically the accomplishments of any player that that was on SMU. And Eric Dickerson was the most high-profile player there. But like, we can go back to the beginning of college football, and we're going to have. Here's an example. Uh, Chicago um, quarterback Walter Eckersall, 1905-1906 All-American national champion quarterback. He barely attended class and barely tried in school. I know this from research, all of that. He <laughs> was in, in, had a wild recruitment from like, Michigan boosters and Chicago boosters were involved in. He was accused in print of accepting impermissible benefits during college. He denied it, but he was accused of it. Um, and he should be absolutely be in the Hall of Fame. He was an All-American quarterback. This is way back in the 1900s. And I think you can go throughout history. It's, I'm sure there's plenty of other guys who have received benefits that we don't know about. And we don't even know about Eric Dickerson specifically. Um, so it's just, you know, let's get over ourselves. He was an all-time great college football player who played college football. He wasn't uh, kicked off the team or anything like that. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of just silly. He's a first ballot pro football Hall of Famer and clearly an all-time great and part of one of the most memorable backfields of all time. Yeah, they, they have essentially something of a character clause. Uh, in the in the requirements for the College Football Hall of Fame, what you would need to be to be considered, and but again, it's somewhat vague. And you're right. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Dickerson never. You know, there's no proof that anything went to Dickerson. Now, considering what was going on at SMU, yes. I think it's pretty safe that we could assume that that Eric Dickerson probably got a little something that he maybe should that that would have broken the rules. I think that's a fair assumption. But as you say, it, I think if you the farther you stretch back in fo- college football, the more the recruiting or what who was permissible to play and the movement of players, especially during wartime, um, everything gets a little funky when you start moving farther yes. back in college football. So, so again, to a certain degree, I think. I think the College Football Hall of Fame has always been very reluctant to embrace the uh, anything with that SMU team that got the death penalty. Listen, I mean, it's uh, you can say that other schools in the in the southwest in the southwestern conference were doing were doing it just as badly, or the Southwest Conference were just as cheating just as bad. But SMU was the one that got caught, and it's the only school that got the death penalty. I do sense, though, that there has been a movement toward getting him in, and my I suspect that. He will get in. So another thing you should know about the College Football Hall of, Fame, Hall of Fame is, again, over the last 10 or 15 years, as some new leadership take took over, they really tried to make the process a little more uh, legitimate. Uh, layers of voting to whittle down candidates. You know, even they even have a regional aspect to the voting that I am part of, you know, I, I, you might be, you maybe get a ballot too. I don't know if you do, Matt, but I know some college football writers in this part of the country. We get like an, a northeast ballot, and northeast is you know in quotes because I think it goes down to Virginia and up through New England, and you whittle down a field of about fifteen or twenty players to about seven or eight, so they can take a, a bunch from each region and put it on the bigger ballot. That ballot goes out to about 12,000 people. That whittles it down, and then they have an honors committee that picks the, the the field or the class. And even within that class, they try to provide a certain amount of balance because, again, they're so far behind, so far behind on players. So they try to provide certain balance as far as maybe only one player from each from a team did we have two or three players in from this team the last couple of years? Well, maybe we can go with somebody else this year. And again, there's just the volume of players is so big to try to provide any kind of continuity to it or fairness. It's just almost impossible. So, but I do sense that because I wrote and written about Dickerson a couple of times when it's come and gone, that there might be some swaying of enough time has passed that there might be a different look at Dickerson. And I don't know if he's going to get in. We're way too far in, in, uh, in early in the process to know that. But I, I wouldn't be shocked if, because I know SMU has been pushing very hard and the schools push very hard for their candidates. Uh, so I wouldn't be shocked if, if the, the dam finally breaks on Eric Dickerson in the upcoming years. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, it's I think it's like enough time has passed. It's like we, uh, 
you know, if he would have went somewhere else, would would his recruiting process have been any less shady? Like, <laughs> right, right. So let's just be honest with ourselves and what this is. It's all is my point. I mean, I don't think it's hurting anybody if he gets in. So one of the things I forced Matt to do was to make a list of third because every year the the class involves thirteen players, two coaches, and among the even among those thirteen players, they have a, a huge list of players who did not play in FBS or Division 1A. There's another list of 100 more players, and they only pick one or two out of that list. You know, the, That was honestly the easiest part, though, in, in flipping through this when I realized one name who was not in the Hall of Fame yet. So Okay, well, you know what? Let's, we're going to go through a little – well, let's, let's do this. Let's do this. Let me take – give me a couple of players, and – I'll tweet out the list here, the link to the list. So if you're listening to this, you'll be able to find that on my Twitter account, Ralph D. Russo AP, and you can sort of follow because I can't read all 76 players. We would put would put folks to bed. Uh, but just to throw out a couple of names of like Andre Tippett, Michael Westbrook, um, Matt mentioned the three Heisman Trophy winners, you know, Ed McCaffrey, EJ Jr., there's just nothing but like guys who you go, man, well, guy was a great player. Okay, I was a great player. Like almost every turn, it's that guy was a great player. So let me ask you a few guys who didn't make it, who were especially difficult to make the cut, because to a sense, in, in some ways, they're all hard to cut. Yes. Um, so people I didn't put on my team who I think obviously deserve a, a look. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Give me, give me two or three. Who were really like you kind of kept going back to and going like, boy, you know, I really should have this guy on, but I can um, only put thirteen, so I'm sort of stuck. Uh, well, okay. How about Josh Heupel, who's, um, you know, for all of I, I didn't include him because I included another Oklahoma player on my list, and I didn't want to overlap too much. But you know, we talk about all these great Oklahoma quarterbacks over the past twenty years. Which one won a national championship? Josh Heupel, and kind of led the renaissance in Oklahoma. I think he's a college football Hall of Famer, almost won the Heisman. Um, so he's not on my list, but I think he could easily make that argument. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned already, I think every Heisman winner should be in. So I think Rashawn Salam should be in. But Eric Bieniemy, who isn't on my list from Colorado, should be a college football Hall of Famer. Um, led them to the national title, was third in the Heisman vote. Uh, obviously a fantastic college back. So I'll put those two were first that come to mind that I think I had even wrote down on my list and then crossed out for various reasons, but I think they should be in too. Yeah. I had um, among the guys who I sort of circled back on and went, wow, I'm, I'm leaving this guy out, you know? And again, there are literally dozens that, that qualify here. (laughs) So Tim couch was one uh, former um, Kentucky quarterback who threw for a zillion yards and ushered in, you know, on the in the Hal Mummy offense, and to a certain degree, I, I I think you might be able to play it as well. Hal Mummy offense really inflated his stats. He was a failed num- first overall draft pick, but to me, I, I almost find it that he he was sort of you know one of the not necessarily patient zero, but to a certain degree, he was one of the first quarterbacks to sort of enter the air raid offense and become a star in the air raid offense to so to uh, on a on a certain level he was not just a, a great player who put up amazing numbers he was also a little bit of a trailblazer yeah especially in the sec when you talk about a guy like that in the air raid offense yeah so 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 he came to mind for me i mean the other one that sort of was boy i can't believe i'm leaving this guy out and i have to make sure i actually did leave him out so i'm looking at my list of guys who did get in <laughs> And I mean Leslie O'Neill from Oklahoma State, but to a certain degree, he was also one of my like personal favorites from the '80s. It's also hard to not do that. Like I, I you know, I it's for me. I you know, I was born in 1988, so it's guys in the late '90s and early 2000s. I like remember really fondly because it's when I really started connecting with college football. So it's hard to not fall into that as a voter as well, or, or picking guys, I think. Absolutely. Another guy, you know, Josh Heupel is new to the ballot this year. This is his first year on the ballot. The way it works is you have to be out of your college career for at least to be 10 years after your college career ended. Uh, and if you play professionally, generally speaking, I, in fact, I think they have, have this on here. If they play professionally, uh, your professional career has to be over. 
So Julius Peppers is on the ballot this year for the first time because his, he finally called it quits after 17 years in the NFL. I didn't realize that. Julius Peppers played <laughs> 17 years in the NFL. Also, he's not on my list, but he also should be. He's another one of those. Yeah, so. <laughs> Julius. so Julius Peppers was one of mine. And, and again, another you mentioned um, Eric Bieniemy. Michael Westbrook from those Colorado teams was yep. another guy. And again, just I, I love those teams. Those teams were fascinating to me because Colorado wasn't good then got really really good and they I always said that they were the first team I can remember to wear like heavily like all black and or (laughs) heavily black uniforms and they just looked incredibly fast right it just looks I I just have I have memories of them being just as a blur whizzing by Wisconsin in the early 90s in games that were supposed to be big games, except that they just beat the tar out of Wisconsin. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on, too, where I think I just think back fondly to those teams and think, oh, Michael Westbrook, he's got to be in the Hall of Fame. So he didn't make the cut for me. Let's talk about some guys who did make the cut. We'll do it this way. We'll go back and forth. You give me your guy. I'll tell him if he's on your list. If, you, if the guy you give is not on your list, I'll give a guy. So give me number one from your list in no All particular right. order. Well, we've already talked about Eric Dickerson, so obviously he's on my list. Right. Um, and he is also on my list, so I will check so off Eric Dickerson. I'll move to the next one, which is Jerome Brown, defensive tackle from Miami. Uh, I, I think that's a no-brainer to me. Um, yes, they they – famously lost the game to Penn state in the Fiesta bowl in 86, but you know, those are iconic Miami teams and he's one of the iconic players of that. Uh, if you can call it a dynasty, obviously they're one of the most powerful programs ever at the time. Um, so I, I think it would be hard to have a college football hall of fame without Jerome Brown. I would say. Yeah. I have Jerome Brown on my list and there have been a t- obviously a ton of Miami players going in over the last decade yes. or so, because you're dealing with, you know, the, the decades in which Miami has dominated. So there's been a lot of Miami players. I do wonder why Jerome Brown has taken quite so long. And again, part of that is might just simply be because there are so many Miami players going in. But it does seem like we have uh, we have failed Jerome Brown there uh, in in not having him in the College Football Hall of Fame. So I'm with you on Jerome Brown. Um, do you want to go next or should I? No, you go next. So all right. Well, I'm going to cheat here. I already said all. Every Heisman winner on the ballot should be in. I'm just going to talk about one of them, though, here. Sure. And I'm going to talk about Eric Crouch, who I think gets a bad rap now because he was looked at as a kind of a controversial Heisman winner. You know, his passing numbers were terrible. Um, And then, you know, their last game, they got destroyed by Colorado uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. And then they get destroyed by Miami. And it's basically the end of the Nebraska dynasty. But you know what? Eric Crouch was a great college football player. He was an exciting, dynamic guy. Uh, rushed for over a thousand yards um, was just a, a, it's like the last of the great big time option quarterbacks. And I, I think he's, you know, an all time great college football player. He's a Heisman winner. And even if he shouldn't have won it, he should have been in the top two or three. And I, I just think it's like his career is kind of underrated now because it's like the end of his career is kind of a punchline. So I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree with that. He finished his career as the NCAA record holder in career rushing touchdowns for a quarterback with 59. Now, I think that has simply that has been passed. In fact, it's probably been passed multiple times uh, since he since he stepped away. And he is he's a little bit like a dinosaur. Right. He, he is he is a option quarterback at a time when we view quarterbacks as multi multiple threats, right? Dual threat quarterbacks are now all the rage guys who run like running backs and pass like quarterbacks. So since the Vince young era and Marcus Mariota and all these guys who, and Robert Griffin and Lamar Jackson and all these guys who do a thousand, a thousand, right? Thousand yards rushing and, or, or excuse me, a thousand, three thousand, thousand yards rushing, 3000 yards passing. So a guy like Crouch is, is from a different time. But I agree with you, and I know Nebraska fans have been pushing for him for a while. Though, to be fair, Nebraska, also another situation where a lot of those teams in the 90s, a lot of those players from those great 90s teams and 80s teams have been getting in. So it's not like Nebraska is not very well represented, and in some cases he has been passed over essentially by other Nebraska guys. Again, the Hall of Fame, to provide a certain amount of fairness and, and spread the wealth around a little bit, they try not to put... Too many players from the same team over and over and over. No more than one a year. If there was a, a Nebraska player from last year, they might not put one for this year. 
Um, again, they, it, it, it sounds like that might not be fair to those players, but they're, they're trying to come up with some kind of structure here that gets a lot of players involved because there are so many worthy players. So I'm with Young Crouch. I would, you know, the late Rashan Salam. I'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And if I'm, I'm, I don't know this for sure. I am guessing they might, there might be some sensitivity there at this point to putting him in, whether it's the right time, because, you know, he, he passed away, uh, in a suicide, if I remember correctly. Um, so, at this point, again, whether does his family want that right now? Maybe, maybe not. So I, I imagine there'll be some sensitivity around the Rashan Salam induction. At some point, he should be in. If we're just in a vacuum, I would put him in. I would put Jesse, uh, not Jesse Palmer, Carson Palmer in, <laughs> and I would put Eric Crouch in. So I agree with you on all, all those three guys. Um, well, next I'm going to go to. I, I like I like when the College Football Hall of Fame can honor these types of guys who you know may, maybe they're not at a power school, they're not winning national championships, but they did something fun and exciting and different. And so I'm going to say Marcus Harris, the wide receiver from Wyoming in the nineties. You know, Joe Tiller did a great job at Wyoming as well. Marcus Harris had three consecutive years with 1400 receiving yards and double digit touchdowns senior year, 109 catches for 1600 yards. That's like Michael Crabtree numbers at Texas tech, but in the nineties at Wyoming uh, finished in the top 10 of the Heisman vote was on a Wyoming team that finished ranked in the top 25 and went 10 and two. So I like when the college football hall of fame can can honor guys like that too, who had fantastic college careers and should be remembered well. So he's on my list. That's a great one. He is not on my list. And frankly, now that I take a step back, someone Marcus Harris or someone like Marcus Harris should be on my list. And again, I think when the, when they're putting together the class, that's the type of representation they want. They want to get a wide breadth from college football. So it's not just another Michigan player, another Ohio State player, another yep. Alabama player, you know, and, and just, you know, schools from the big power uh, players from the big powerhouses. Marcus Harris isn't on my list. If I had to go back and redo it, I would probably put Marcus Harris or somebody like Marcus Harris on my list. So next one I'll say is one who gets, you know, I think. Over time, you start looking back at a team and maybe you identify it with like one player and Virginia Tech going to the national championship game in 99. You think, okay, that's Michael Vick's breakout, right? But Corey Moore was a fantastic all around defensive player, like swept all the defensive awards. You know, in in 99, Virginia Tech goes to the national championship game, obviously had a great defense. You know, Penn State had the uh, number one and number two picks in the NFL draft on its defense and LeVar Arians and Courtney Brown, Corey Moore won the national defensive awards. Uh, I think he had like 17 or 18 sacks um, kind of, you know, maybe the best player Bud Foster ever had on defensive Virginia tech. So uh, he is on my list as another guy who helped make Virginia tech into what it became under Frank Beamer. Yeah. I also had Corey Moore too. And I had to, he was among the players on the regional ballot that I tried, you know, that I filled out and I don't know if I really appreciated how good he was until I went back and looked at those numbers and how good he was. And, you know, I think it's also like he wasn't a high draft pick. And I know that shouldn't necessarily factor in here, but he was a really good pro. He he spent a lot of years in the NFL and I think he even made a couple of Pro Bowls. So he was a really spectacular player in college. And he was definitely one of those guys that when... That, you know, you sort of remember, think back and remember, oh, he was a good player. No, no, no. He was an absolutely great player. So he is also on my list. So we've got a bunch of similar, similar, uh, we've got a bunch of guys on our list who are similar. We are, we're a little more than halfway through the show here. I'm going to take a quick break and we will finish this up with Matt Brown from The Athletic. We are talking Hall of Fame. We are putting together our list of Hall of Fame, of what the next Hall of Fame class should be in 2020 out of a mountain of stars who we can hardly ever, you, you could hardly distinguish from. But we're doing the best we can and we'll be back right after this on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back. Matt Brown and Ralph Russo, we are plowing through the Hall of Fame ballot to try to come up with a class of 13 now, so far, we have a lot of similar names here, so I'm going to run through the similar names that we have had on here so far, just to remind some folks. It's Rashan Salam, Eric Crouch, and Carson Palmer, all Heisman Trophy winners. Jerome Brown from Miami. Eric Dickerson from SMU. Corey Moore from Virginia Tech. 
Um, and the one player that Matt has mentioned that I do not have is Marcus Harris, the receiver from Wyoming. And quite frankly, I might actually have to push somebody off and put Marcus <laughs> Harris on there on my list. So, I'm glad I was convincing. Yes, <laughs> but, you, you have absolutely. Again, the numbers are really are stunning considering at the time he did this, it was just, again, the, just the burgeoning start of the spread offenses under Joe Tiller. So uh, who, do you, who else do you have here, Matt? I'm going to go with um, Dan Morgan from Miami, the linebacker. You know, you look back and he like we all look back at the 2001 Miami team as the one of the greatest ever. And he wasn't on that team. He just missed out on being on that team. But he helped build that foundation in 2000, which was also a absolutely loaded team that came up short of the national championship. Um, but he, you know, unanimous All-American, uh, Biggie's defensive player of the year, Buckus Award, Nagurski Award, Benaric Award, won everything. Uh, obviously, you know, a, a great, great, great linebacker of the last few decades. So he, he is on my list as, you know, not to go too Miami heavy on this, but obviously Miami has had a million talented players in the last 30, 40 years. So, uh, but I'm going to include him on my list. Yeah. The only reason why I didn't put Morgan on the list is, is I tried to make the list in a sense to the rules that the committee would follow, which would essentially be, and again, I think there are more unwritten rules than they are in guidelines than they are, you know, hard and fast is I don't think the, the, the committee would not put two Miami players on there. Now, Ray Lewis is on this list too. And God knows Ray Lewis is going to be in the college football hall of fame. I imagine at some point too, I went with Jerome Brown because I feel like he's been omitted for a while. I would have even put Morgan in there over Lewis. You know, their college careers were quite similar. I mean, Morgan may have even been even more decorated than Lewis. And Morgan's pro career was cut short by a knee injury, if I remember correctly. Um, You know, Dan Morgan may have been Luke Keekley or or Ray Lewis, you know, before uh, an injury cut short his career. So Morgan's a good pick. The only reason why I don't have him is because I only wanted to go with one Miami guy and I had Jerome Brown. So who else you got? Uh, let's go to, well, Notre Dame has obviously enough representation in the College Football Hall of Fame, but just looking back to the list, I thought Todd Light was somebody who stood out um, as somebody who, it, kind of surprising, isn't in. You know, two-time first-team All-American was kind of just one of those foundational pieces of Notre Dame's renaissance under Lou Holtz. Um, obviously, tough times in the mid-'80s, and then uh, guys like Todd Light come, come along, and you know, he played heavily as a freshman. Uh, they win the national championship in 1988. He's an All-American in 1989 and 1990. They had three consecutive, I think, top six teams. Um, so just a, a very, very good player who stands out as one of the best players on the best the best era of Notre Dame football in the last, you know, what, 40 years? So uh, I, I, he stood out to me. There are two Notre Dame players on this list. At least I think there are two. There are at least two. <laughs> and there are, again, there are 76 <laughs> players, so I may miss one. Todd Light is one, and I guess one of his contemporaries. I think Light maybe played a little earlier than Aaron Taylor. No, 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 no. They were, they were both on on some of those same teams. A little um, bit of overlap, but Taylor was yeah. He was an All American a couple years later. 92. Exactly the overlap, but yet I think um, I think Taylor. Yeah, right. I don't think Taylor Another was a one prominent player. Out, and if you said he should be in, I'm totally on board with that too. And that was it. I, I kind of I, I landed on Taylor as opposed to Light. I think I could have gone either way. Um, but I ended up landing on Taylor for my list as a, as a Notre Dame representative. And again, not that no, you necessarily have to have a Notre Dame representative, but I kind of weighed them both, and Taylor lend, ended up on my list, maybe also because I know Aaron Taylor. See, again, like it's hard not to get these have these things come through because there are just so many great players. So when you start splitting hairs between like Todd Light and Aaron Taylor, the fact that I know Aaron Taylor seeps through and I'm throwing him a bone on the podcast. So I, you know I, I, I want to switch my pick to Aaron Taylor, too, anyway, because I just realized I don't have any offensive linemen and that's that's just that's wrong. So Aaron Taylor is on my list. <laughs> okay, there you go. And, you know, at a certain point when I was making my list, I realized I was a little offense-heavy, so I, I, I particularly steered a couple of defensive players on there. Okay, so I've talked you into Aaron Taylor. Who's next on your list? I'm going to go with David Pollock from Georgia, who, again, a guy who has his pro career cut short, but was um, a, a fantastic college football player who, uh, you know, was kind of at the start of Georgia's a little bit of a renaissance under Mark Richt. Um I, you know, he's three-time first-team All-American, consensus twice, two-time SEC Defensive Player of the Year, um, you know, 36 career sacks, was an incredibly good college football player. And, uh, you know, I think 
I don't want to say he gets forgotten at all because he doesn't, but it's just one of those ones where his pro career didn't end up going where he wanted it to. Now we know him as the TV guy, but he was a great, great, great college football player. Yeah, to a certain degree, I I, I sense that a guy like Pollock, because we see him on TV, I, I don't know if that hurts is not really the right thing to say, but the perception of him, he's just such a young guy on TV, which essentially can you know is is a tell that his. Uh, his pro career didn't go on very long, but that was because of an injury, a serious yes. neck injury. So I think that might, in a little sense, cloud the perception of him as a player. But he was a terror. I mean, he was an absolute terror in a first-round draft pick at Georgia. He also made my list. So so we are we have a lot of agreement, as I'm not— Which is surprising, honestly. <laughs> again, because there are so many players here. Though I imagine, to a certain degree, the agreement becomes— though I, I am a, a probably a solid 10 or 15 years, if not more than that, older than you, Matt. But our—, our, our Point of view does overlap to a certain sure. degree, so I'm not completely shocked that we have a few, a lot of the same guys on our list. So, who else do you got? I have another couple guys from that sort of era, and one I mentioned how I didn't put Hypo on my list because I had another Oklahoma player from this era, mm-hmm. and that's Roy Williams, um, the safety. Who, you know, what is Oklahoma's problem now? They can't play defense. That's why they haven't been able to break through with you know these Hives and winning quarterbacks, and you know get to the national championship game in the beginning of the Bob Stoops era, they had one of the best defenses in the country. And you look back at some of those guys they had, you know, Teddy Lehman and, and uh, Tommy Harris and, you know, Roy Williams, as much as anybody, um, this is the team that held that held Florida state to what two points in a national championship game um, that, you know, was dominant several years in a row on defense. Uh, So Roy Williams, who, you know, all-American, won, won awards, led Oklahoma's renaissance under Bob Stoops. He, he is on my list. Okay, he is also on my list. <laughs> he also has an iconic moment, right? Yes. He has the Superman sack of, it was Chris Sims, right, in the, in the, uh, in the Red River game back in the early 2000s. I'm pretty sure that was Chris Sims he got, right, in that Texas game? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, where he literally like leaped over a blocker, I mean, full on flying through the air. So the iconic play certainly helps. And again, when you're splitting hairs, one simply one play that sort of defines, that in some ways defined an era, right? And that, that play yep. defined that era of Oklahoma-Texas to a certain degree because Oklahoma really dominated Texas for about a five- or six-year period when that game was a major game for national for the national championship. The winner of that game, and it was usually Oklahoma, stayed in the national championship race, and the loser ended up sort of getting nudged to the side. Though I could say at least one year, the winner got nudged to the side <laughs> a little later on in the uh, in the in the 2000s. But yes, I, I have a Roy Williams on my list as well. All right, so next on your list, Matt Brown. This one is kind of a nostalgia pick, too, and it's not that long ago, but for me it's nostalgia because um, I grew up going to Big Ten games, and that would be Antoine Randallel, mm-hmm. who I, I – the fact that an Indiana quarterback in a, for a team that finished with a losing record was number six in the Heisman race uh, says how good Antoine Randallel was and how fun he was and how kind of revolutionary he was. I mean, you know, you look back, there, there weren't a lot of quarterbacks, as we've already talked about, putting up you know, passing and rushing numbers. If you look back now, his, his numbers look like nothing. Just like if you look back at Michael Vick's college numbers, it's like stunning that he only rushed for 600 some yards. Uh, Randall L had, you know, um, 1,200 rushing. He had at least 788 rushing yards in all four of his seasons, including 1,270 in 2000. He was a, he was a revolutionary type player. Um, and a really, really fun player. And as I say with Mark and ha- Marcus Harris, except Indiana wasn't even good these years, but it was still just an iconic kind of player. And if you can be an iconic player for losing teams at Indiana, I think you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. He's the, he was that good. Yet again, we have a similar guy here. I mean, <laughs> and it is pretty funny that with all these players, we've had so many similar picks. But you're right. I mean, this was in, in, he played on Indiana teams that barely made a stir. But yet he was a first-team All-American. and he scared everybody who played him. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's 6,000 yards passing, 3,000 yards rushing. And again, that's at a time, and he did that in his career, but that's at a time when those numbers were just absurd. Uh, in fact, when he was done with his college career, he had more rushing yards than any quarterback ever at the time of it, when his career was over. Now, again, those numbers have been passed, but at the time they were outlandish. 
and uh, and Antoine Randall L. Yeah, I, I would definitely love to see him in the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. All right, so the, yet another one. We're, we're, we're whittling down here. We probably only have, what, about two or three more? Yes, we have two more FBS spots, I believe, when we said we're going to do one from the lower divisions, right? Sure. Fire away. So I'm going to go with EJ Henderson from Maryland, who's one who, um, you know, Maryland, it, it seems like forever ago now, but Maryland won or won an ACC title, went to the Orange Bowl. Uh, EJ Henderson, now tackle stats don't go back that far. Like if you look into the NCAA record book, um, I think they only go back to 2000 uh, as a defensive record, but he had, holds the record for 135 solo tackles in one season, uh, 8.8 in his career per game. Um, he's kind of like a Patrick Willis type performer, you know, but just a little bit earlier, where just an incredibly productive and prolific college football player for really good Maryland teams. Um, and, you know, was multi, won the ACC Defensive Player of the Year twice, was overall ACC Player of the Year, um, won the Benaric, won the Butkus. So EJ Henderson is on my list. Okay. There is one we do not agree on. So now I have a couple of players left on my list. Um, I think I may bump Jumbo Elliott for Marcus Harris. I, I you really the, the Marcus Harris pitch was really great, <laughs> so I'd be tempted to bump Jumbo Elliott out there, but maybe maybe not. But Jumbo Elliott made my list. Michigan offensive lineman who played during the nineteen late nineteen eighties, I believe. Yeah, nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> he was an All American, and he because he played on giant Super Bowl teams that Giants teams that won Super Bowls. Uh, And he was a dominant player in the Big Ten. And and honestly, simply Jumbo, right? I mean, he was one of the first (laughs) offensive linemen that was particularly huge. Or you remembered as being like, you know, pushing that 300 pound, like, you know, six foot six, six foot seven. He, you know, the fact that they, he was nicknamed Jumbo. Listen, all the offensive linemen were big, but he was particularly big to the point of that was, you know, again, nicknaming him Jumbo. So I had him on my list. I might consider bumping him. I will throw this other name out there because I don't think you've got him before we get to your last uh, FBS guy, Keith Byers, the running back. From Ohio State, tough made, cut on my list. I yeah, really him and didn't. made my made my list. He was you know mid eighties star, uh, Big Ten MVP. The thing that Keith Byers was before it was super popular is he was an all around player and an all around back. He even caught some passes. You know he had. 4,369 all-purpose yards and 3,200 career rushing yards. Like Those are still really high up the Ohio State list, even though Ohio State's had a, just a, a plethora of great backs and the offenses have exploded. So now you have guys doing more things and putting up more, uh, more absurd numbers. Byers also, if I remember correctly, like was injured in one of his what would have been one of his big years. I think either going into his junior year or his senior year was injured and it limited him a little bit. But he was a great, great player. Went on to a very nice sort of solid NFL career. So Keith Byers out of Ohio State also made my list. Yeah, I like that pick a lot. Well, I guarantee you my last pick is probably not in your list either. So um, I I just felt like being a history buff guy who who likes to go back into the old days. Now, the the lower limit on this, I believe, is – to be on the ballot, you had to have your last season within the last 50 years. Yeah, so 1970. I so believe. I went back to 1970. Okay. Uh, and I chose Ernie Jennings, the wide receiver from Air Force on this list, who stuck out to me. All-American at Air Force, uh, was on an Air Force team that uh, that went to the Sugar Bowl, finished eighth in the Heisman Trophy race, and is all over the Air Force record books for receiving, which you do not think of for Air Force now, of course. Um, but... 17 receiving touchdowns led the country in 1970, uh, 148 career rece- receptions, 2,300 career uh, receiving yards. So I wanted to, to dig deep for somebody. This is kind of in the vein of Marcus Harris, but I wanted to dig deep to the beginning of this this list. And I thought, you know, here's a guy who people don't know about who had an incredible college career at Air Force. Um, so I put him on my list. Yeah, no, that, that that is one that definitely did not make. And I think that we're both done with FBS players now. But I, I love that you made that pick. It is a very Matt Brown pick. 
It yeah, is very. I, I had to have one. <laughs> yeah, it is very much the pick of a man who has spent his his college football off season uh, digging into old newspaper clips and writing about nineteen hundred football, <laughs> about about turn of the century college football. So go as far back as you can and pick an Air Force wide receiver. You know, <laughs> just one one other guy I need to mention here because again he was one of my just all time favorite players. And I'm glad that he's even on the ballot, and hopefully one day he will get in and he has passed away. His son is now playing at Michigan State. Craig Ironhead Hayward is a nominee this year. And, you know, I went back and kind of looked at his numbers, and his overall numbers are are maybe not quite as great as some of the other really outstanding backs. I think he only had two really big seasons, but he was such a phenomena again for a couple of years. He was a a big back at a time when you didn't see guys who were quite that guys who were quite that big were an anomaly in the backfield and he was a he was fun to watch play and he had one or two just absolutely outstanding years. So, I would love to see Craig Ironhead Hayward get in the Hall of Fame posthumously at some point or another. Yeah, I think that's a great pick for sure. Okay, so now you said your FBS pick was, or excuse FCS me, your, your FCS pick, yeah. pick or divisional. Or some lower, the, yeah, 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 some of these guys are even from Division Two and Division Three. You said it was an easy one. There's one guy. I'm going to try to guess it because there's one guy on here that sort of stood out to me as both famous and great, and that was as I scroll down here to make sure I get him right. So Keith Elias from Princeton. 19 started in the 1990s early 1990s he was a huge deal as a, a dominant Ivy League player you know just 4200 yards 49 touchdowns in his career he was like a three-time all Ivy League player two-time Ivy player of the year so Keith Elias I, I would be the guy I guess I would pick without a ton of research into this is is Elias the guy that you landed on he was not, although he was one of the ones that definitely stuck out in scrolling through this very, very, very long list. Very, very, very long. Of. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I I picked Steve McNair, who, you know, it's, okay. it, he was third in the Heisman vote as a quarterback at Alcorn State, which is just insane to think about. You know, what would it take now for, for an FCS quarterback to finish third in the Heisman vote? Yeah. Um, you know, he had 6,288-81 all-purpose yard, or total, yards of total offense and 56 total touchdowns as a senior. Um, just obviously an incredible, incredible, incredible college career. Yeah, and, uh, and so that's, and that's my bad. I, like, I, I saw McNair on here yesterday and jotted him down, and then it sort of slipped my mind um, And when I went back and did my list today. So, yeah, McNair is definitely the guy on here who should be in there. Again, another well, There's guy another who, name everybody's going to see that sticks out just because they know who he is, and that's Tony, Tony Romo. On the list yeah, for the first time. Yeah, for the first time Tony Romo's on the list, and I imagine at some point he will get in. But yeah, um, uh, make Steve. You know who I regretted Steve, not saying who I just saw on this list. Who's that? Just for fun, Sean Landetta, Towson punter. Yeah, That's just, just NFL for, nostalgia there too. <laughs> just for the heck of bringing it up, yeah, Steve McNair. You know, Steve McNair was uh, again right in my wheelhouse as far as I think I was in my early twenties when he had his breakout season. I was just getting into the this business, uh, working in New York. And and ESPN threw threw a couple of his games on that year because he became such an amazing phenomenon. And again, it, just to put that in perspective, he finished third in the Heisman. He was an, a huge, huge star playing in FCS. Well, back then, Division One AA. Like that's just something that almost that would be almost impossible yeah. these days. And then again, and then again, he turned out to be a hell of a pro player too. So there, because there was a lot of questions about, well, what kind of, just like there would be today, what kind of competition is he doing this against? Is he really this transcendent player, or is he just beating up on guys who you know would never have a chance to play at higher levels? Uh, but he was a he was an absolute star and went on to a big pro career to sort of validate that he was every bit the phenomena that he was in college. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So, all right. So let let me let, let me do this. Read down your list one through thirteen. I have Jerome Brown, Eric Dickerson, Eric Crouch, see Corey Moore, Dan Morgan, David Pollock, Todd Light, or Aaron Taylor, one of those Notre Dame <laughs> players. Marcus Harris, Roy Williams. Let's see, Antoine Randall, L., E.J. Henderson, 
Ernie Jennings and Steve McNair. I think I got everybody there. Yeah, that is a very, very solid list. I think we just came up with the um, the class of 2020 College Football Hall of Famers. And again, it's a it's a fun exercise. It's an impossible task that the Hall of Fame has. Uh, there are so many guys on here that we didn't even mention that could absolutely positively be in the College Football Hall of Fame. Um, the fact that you're maybe a first ballot guy, like this year among the first ballot guys, I mentioned Josh Heupel and Julius Peppers, James Laurinaitis uh, from Ohio State, who I believe was a three-time AP All-American, <laughs> which really almost never, ever happens. Right. Uh, but he was so good as a freshman. C.J. Spiller from Clemson, who was a spectacular player. So, so many great players, and it was fun to sort of whittle this list down to try to come up with, try to help the Hall of Fame out a little bit. And I, and I think I'll probably even write a column about who I'm going to pick. And you know what? Again, I, I haven't written that column yet. That That is not completely out there yet. I very well might steal Marcus Harris, and I'll have to credit you. <laughs> I'm so impressed with the Marcus Harris nomination that I might have to steal it from you. So let me just wrap up by doing this, Matt. I want to circle back to your History of College Football series on the athletic 150-year anniversary of college football this year. ESPN is blowing out the budget, and they're going to have a whole bunch of content. The athletic is doing theirs early in the offseason. You and Michael Weinraub have been chronicling each decade of college football. Give me—I don't want to go through each decade, but give me— <laughs> A something, especially somebody like you, who is really a historian and loves to dive into old stuff. Give me one thing, one or two things that you learned that were sort of very much surprising to you. Oh, that's tough. Oh, wow. Uh, I've written about 70,000 words in this series, <laughs> so that's a lot. Um, you know, here's one that's not surprising to me because I, I knew about it already, but I think it would surprise a lot of people because people don't know who he is. 1930s and early 1940s. You know, we talk about Nick Saban and all the national championships he's won, and it is arguably the greatest coaching performance ever over the last decade. And, you know, I, I think Nick Saban's the best college football coach of all time. Bernie Bierman at Minnesota won five national championships in less than a decade, uh, including the first ever AP poll national championship in 1936. Yes, sir. So they won three in a row, and then they had a couple, they went down a little bit. And then 1940 and 1941, they won two more national championships. So I think it's just one of those, I knew about him. I had read about him in the past couple of years, but I don't think he's, you know, everybody knows about Newt Rockney in the 1920s. They, they know about, um, most people probably know about Frank Leahy in Notre Dame and, and Red Blake and Army in the 1940s. I think the 1930s are a decade that people don't know quite as much about. And Minnesota was one of the most powerful programs of college football history in, in that time with, an all-time great coach who I feel like has just fallen under the radar. He was a guy who didn't like publicity, didn't talk about himself a lot. Um, so I think that's one I, I think it's fun to, to – I don't want to say bring to light, but give a little bit more publicity to guys like that who people didn't really know or, or don't know now. Um, so that's one that stands out to me. Matt Brown from The Athletic. He uh, knows his college football history about as well as anybody, especially for his relatively young age. He is a student of the game. Uh, go read his stuff, his series on the 150-year history of college football. And um, thanks for, for, for putting together the Hall of Fame ballot with me, Matt. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ralph. This is fun. And now, three and out. First down. In the last couple of weeks, both USF and Memphis have signed on for two-for-one deals against SEC schools. USF locked up Florida for one game in Tampa and two in Gainesville and then signed on for a two-for-one against Alabama. Memphis did a similar deal this week with Arkansas. It's not entirely fair, but USF and Memphis taking these deals while fellow American Athletic Conference rival UCF holds out for only home-and-home home series certainly doesn't look great for the Knights. Why is it not entirely fair to make an apples-to-apples -apples comparison on those teams? Well, I say this all the time about scheduling, so if you're a regular listener, you've heard it before. Scheduling is as much about finances as it is about competition. UCF and AD Danny White have determined that two-for-ones don't work for the athletic department's financial model for growth, at least for now. White has made the calculation that UCF always has to have seven home games. And there are enough solid Power 5 programs like Georgia Tech and North Carolina, Louisville, Stanford that are willing to do home-and-home -home series with the Knights. 
UCF plays in an on-campus stadium that seats about 45,000. USF plays off-campus at the home of the Tampa Bay Bucks. The Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium in Memphis is city-owned. For those schools, the trade-off on having an SEC team coming to town and the big crowds they'll likely draw is worth the two road games. For UCF, as of right now, it's not. Again, it doesn't look great for UCF, but it's more about finances than UCF ducking somebody. Second down, Las Vegas loves Nebraska. One particular odds maker this week has the Huskers at 30 to 1 to win the national championship. Allow me to repeat that 30 to 1 to win the national championship. That's the Nebraska team that won four games last season under new coach Scott Frost. That's better odds than Florida, Notre Dame, Oregon, and Washington. Folks, I think there is a lot of reason for Nebraska to be optimistic about where things are headed with Scott Frost, but you're better off burning your money than betting Nebraska to win a national title this year. Huskers quarterback Adrian Martinez also has been showing up rather high on the early lists of Heisman candidates, which I also think is a little nuts just because I doubt the Huskers will win more than about eight games which would be a huge step forward, but nowhere close to justifying the type of odds they're giving Nebraska to win a national championship or Martinez to win a Heisman. Among the longer shots for national title I do like is LSU at 20-1. But really, if you gave me the choice between Alabama and Clemson or the field, I'll take the Tide and Tigers, no problem. Third down, and one more note about the odds. There is a group of 11 teams listed at 100-1 to to win the national title. Among them are Miami, USC, and Penn State. Now, forget about winning a national title this year. If I had to take one of that 100-1 to group, which also includes Wisconsin, Iowa, Florida State, TCU, to make it to a New Year's Six Bowl, I think I'm going with Penn State. There will be a lot of new faces for the Nittany Lions this year, but I suspect the overall talent of that roster is being undervalued. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Ooh.